Um, it's good to be with you again today. Um, we're going to read from God's Word. As you know, if you've been here for the last while, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And last Sunday, um, uh, we were looking at Philippians, the first part of Philippians chapter 3. Stuart was leading us in that. And we're going to break into that chapter at verse 12, where the, the chapter begins to change direction from what Paul's been saying in the first half. So this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And ending at verse 21, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Let's just pause and pray for a moment. Let's pray. Father God, we wait on you. We come to sing your praise. We come to seek your face. We come to listen for your voice as you speak life and direction into our hearts. We come to recognize one another as brothers and sisters, those who have shared in the same blessings through Christ and his cross and resurrection. We come, our Father, to orientate ourselves out towards the world outside this building, which needs to know about you and to live in that world for the glory of your name. And so come now and prepare our hearts, lift our spirits, O oh God, Help us to hear what we need to hear, to be touched by the power that we need to receive, that there might be healing and cleansing and renewing by your grace, and that we who came in one state of mind might live in a different one for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you follow the news, you'll realize that last month something dramatic happened in tourism. And it wasn't, by the way, that you could finally get on a plane to go to Spain. Because up until that point in human history, every possible tourist destination was earthbound. But on the... Oh, there we go. Don't go too quickly for it, John. Uh, on the 11th of July, 2021, that was the day when Sir Richard Branson travelled in his Virgin Galactic rocket plane called Unity, some 85 kilometers up to the place where the blue sky turns black and you can clearly see the curvature of the earth below you. 
He and his three companions and two pilots were the first tourists to reach the edge of space. And afterwards, uh, he tweeted a video that you may have seen on social media, which was filmed during the flight. And in that video, he says this, I was once a child with a dream looking up to the stars. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship looking down to our beautiful earth, to the next generation of dreamers. If we can do this, just imagine what you can do. For now, 600 people have already paid deposits for a flight on Unity at a total cost of £180,000 a seat. It's now possible to travel to destinations beyond the earth. And when you think about that and think about the challenge that Richard Branson puts out in that tweet, the reality is that in the future, you or your children may be planning your holiday not with a map, but with a star chart. Who knows? Where is the Apostle Paul going in his life? In those verses we read a moment or two ago, Paul says this, God has called me heavenward. Or as he puts it later in this section in verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Or as James Moffat translates it, we are a colony of heaven. Philippians would have understood that right away. Philippi was a Roman colony and the citizens of Philippi, by virtue of being citizens of Philippi, were also Roman citizens. They belonged to a city most of them had never seen or ever lived in. And here's the destination Paul is headed to, and this determines the orientation of his life. We are a colony of heaven, he says. His life is headed in a direction to a place he calls home, a place he has never been to and as yet has never lived in. How did this happen? Well, in verse 12, we read that Paul says this, I press on, he says, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Something happened in Paul's life. And it's like a thousand movie scenes where the hero is off the edge of a cliff or a ledge hanging on by one hand, or if it's Star Wars, they're hanging on to the cargo deck of a starship of some sort, okay? And someone reaches down and grips their arm and then says to them, you know, catch, catch on to me. And you see them doing that thing. I don't even know how they do it. I don't think if I was in that position, I could do it, where they're being grabbed by one arm and then they swing the other arm up and the person takes a hold of it and they drag them up off the ledge or whatever it is. The hero of the movie who's hanging off the ledge takes that double grip. On the one hand, the person above them has the hold of them and they reach their hand up and take a grip of the person who is rescuing them. It was a double grip and this was what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. I press on, he said, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Something happened to Paul on the way to Damascus. He says um, 
in one of his other letters, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Something happened that day. He was confronted by Christ and he was captivated by that vision and it changed everything. On that day, in that moment, Jesus gripped Paul and Paul gave himself to hold that That's what he's saying here in these verses. He said in verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. He's using an athletic metaphor. He sees himself as a track athlete who does not look behind at what other competitors are doing, but has his eyes fixed on the goal. Paul wants to take the tape What is that goal? What is the purpose for which Jesus gripped Paul? The answer is that the goal of faith is eschatological. That's a big word. I'll explain that in a minute. Paul puts it like this in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our faith is eschatological. What that means is it is about things which ultimately lie beyond this world. Just as tourism needs destinations beyond the earth. So in our life of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, the ultimate things of this world now lie beyond this world, Paul says. Paul's goal, according to those words, is the consummation of everything when Jesus Christ comes back and Paul's prize is to know Christ, something he's already said that we looked at a couple of weeks ago um, in his letter to the Philippians is the absolute aim of his life. He wants to know Christ. That's the prize. The goal is the consummation of things when Jesus returns And that's the essential orientation of our faith. It's a future-oriented faith. It's not a faith that looks back. It's a faith that looks forward to the coming of our Savior and the consummation of everything that life in this universe means when Jesus comes back. And the problem is that the church can miss sight of this goal and become almost entirely earthbound. We don't talk about it. We don't look to it. It slips out of view. And the question is, does it really matter? I mean, if we're getting on with what we're supposed to be doing and touching the society which we're part of and living for Christ in the here and now, is that not enough in itself? Does it really matter? Yes, the answer is, it matters massively. Not just for us, but for the world in which we live. Gordon Fee commenting on these verses says this, the tragedy that attends the rather thoroughgoing loss of hope in contemporary Western culture is that we are now trying to make the present eternal. Like this is the best there is. Like the extension of this forever would be the good life. When in actual fact our faith says that what we are headed for and what the consummation of who we are is is something that happens outside of time, outside of earth, when Jesus comes back. That day on the road to Damascus, Paul became a future-oriented person. 
And we need to reclaim that perspective. We need Jesus so to grip our lives that that future perspective is the one that governs and controls and directs who we are and what we do as individuals and as the church of Jesus Christ in central Belfast. We need Jesus to grip us, to take a hold of us. During the past 15 months or so since my wife died, I have struggled to pray at all. To think about how I could approach God or what on earth life's supposed to look like or what sort of direction or purpose it's meant to have. All of a sudden you become a strange kind of person who's lost a part of yourself. You don't know who you are anymore. You have no idea where it is you're trying to get. And I read a lot of books around that time um, and uh, one of them was a book by an American uh, Christian leader called Jan Owen whose husband died and while she was involved in Christian ministry. Uh, and she talks about that, and she titled the book Fighting Forward. And, and in the book, she said something that became a, a really helpful thing for me. In the book, she talks about how, like me, in the first couple of years after her husband passed away, she really struggled to pray. In fact, she could only pray one prayer. And that was the one prayer she prayed for all that time. And the prayer was this. Lord Jesus, please don't let me go. It's a great prayer. It has more or less become the prayer of my own life. And the reason why it's a great prayer is because it takes us back to that experience of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus on that day. We're asking Jesus to take such a grip on our lives that we will see him and know him and have our lives orientated by him to the future of his coming back. Our faith is an eschatological faith. It is not backward oriented. It is forward oriented. It is oriented towards the day when Jesus, our King, comes back. But if you want to live that kind of faith, a forward looking faith, then there are two questions you need to ask yourself. And Paul asks them to the Philippians. He warns the Philippians about the dangers and difficulties of living this kind of faith by asking these two questions. And, and here's the first of them. First question is, who is your example? Who is your example for this future-oriented faith? It turns out, you see, that not everyone in the church agrees with Paul on this issue. Now, that probably comes as a big shock to you. You could never imagine that there would be disagreements in the church. But the reality was that, yes, strange as it may seem, some people didn't agree with Paul. Paul says in, in verse 18 that we read first, I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, in this section, when Paul says that, he is almost certainly not talking about members in the church at Philippi, okay? Paul's habit in his letters, when he's referring to local people in the church to which he's writing, he normally says something like this, some of you do this, or some of you say this, or some of you are this, okay? And, and then it's fairly clear that he's talking to people in the church to whom he's writing. Here, however, he doesn't say that. And it seems more likely that what he's talking about here is itinerant preachers and believers who keep coming to visit 
in the local in the local fellowship. We have a number of them here today. All right, so we, I'm putting out a government health warning about the visiting preachers that we have in church this morning. Okay. <laughs> Because um, this would happen in Philippi, and Paul says about them, many of them were good, but many of them were a danger to this young church and its mission. And Paul is deeply concerned about that latter group. So I've often told you before, and I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's really interesting to see how Paul puts that. He's not angry about it which you might expect, hey, this is one of my churches, I don't want interfering people coming in here and doing damage. He's broken, grieving about it. He says it with tears. He says about them this, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Who were these people? The answer is, we have no idea. What did they do which merited such a negative assessment? The answer is, we have no idea. But one thing is clear. One major thing separated Paul and his leadership from these visiting people that he is concerned about. And the thing which separated them was mindset. Their thought world, how they thought about their faith and about the Lord and about the direction of that faith. Their mindset was the key thing. Looking back to the details of his own testimony that we talked about, that Stuart was talking about last Sunday, earlier in this chapter, and looking back further than that to the summary of the life of Jesus in the second chapter of Philippians, Paul makes this remark in the verses we read a moment or two ago. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. All of us who are mature should think like we found the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter two and like we found the experience of Paul in the first part of Philippians chapter three. Everyone who's mature should take such a view of things. Mindset. And then when he refers to these itinerant preachers and influencers, he says this, their mind is on earthly things. This is a mindset issue. Paul's is a future-oriented faith. Theirs is an earth-bound faith. Paul said this in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What's Paul saying? Paul and the Philippian believers were a colony of heaven rather than of Rome. And their savior was not the emperor, although the emperor often claimed to be, but the returning Lord Jesus Christ. And their glorious bodies were not how they were now, but how they would be when Christ returned and they would be like him. And this future-orientated mindset determined how they lived now. It had a practical outworking in the nature of their behavior in the world where they lived. Gordon Fee says this, at issue throughout is living a cruciform existence, discipleship marked by the cross and evidenced by suffering on behalf of Christ. 
or as Paul puts it earlier in the letter, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is a mindset issue. It's not so much about external behavior, not so much about background or education or, or uh, the, the, the kind of cultural world in which people lived and brought with them. This is an issue of mindset, how people thought about the faith and about the Lord Jesus have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So who should the Philippians follow then? Who is their example? Paul says this, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. The big question about who to follow, about who to be our example is who looks like Jesus. Paul's mindset was the mindset that is to be found in Jesus Christ. The question is, who looks like Jesus? Remember my congregation in Carnmoney a number of years ago said to me one day, she stopped me after church one Sunday, she said, John, I've got a funny story to tell you. She was out in the car during the week with her young, youngest a child, a little girl. She said, we were driving along through Newton Abbey and she said, suddenly, little girl who was sitting in a child seat in the back seat called out, mommy, 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 look, it's Jesus. And uh, she said, I, I kind of looked quickly in the rear view mirror to see the car that had just gone past and she said it was your car. <laughs> now, obviously, the little girl is fundamentally very confused, okay? But actually, when you think about it, that's what people should see when they see people who follow the mindset of Christ. Who looks like Jesus in the leadership of this fellowship? Who sounds like him? Whose life has that mindset? Those are the people that we are called to follow. Who lives the cross and resurrection while they wait for the coming Savior? Whose life looks like that? My dad um, had a friend who worked as a porter in Altenagelvin Hospital when he served as a minister in Derry. And this particular man was a brethren and he and my dad used to argue continuously. It had been hard to figure out on some occasions if you were in their company that actually they were good friends. Um, and occasionally they would bump into one another. And I happened to be with my dad one day in Altenagelvin Hospital when he was visiting somebody and he bumped into this man whose name was David and immediately a and he put out his hands, shake hands with my dad. And, and he put out his hands to shake hands with me, even though I was really quite small. I don't know what age I was, but I wasn't terribly old at the time. Put out his hand to shake my hand. And as he shook my hand, he turned it over to look at it. And he said, every hand, I, every hand of a stranger that I shake, I turn it over just to see if it has nail prints. Who lives waiting for the day that Jesus comes back? Who lives the kind of life that is shaped by the cross and the resurrection? Who looks like Jesus? That's the kind of people we need to follow if we're going to live a future-oriented faith. Who is your example? Well, here's the second question. How far have you come? No matter how Christ-like our model believers are, 
they have not arrived at the goal. Paul is at pains to make this point in the first part of the passage that we read a moment or two ago. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but one thing I do, I press on towards the goal to win the prize. This is another feature about eschatological faith and it's come up during the series, the now and the not yet. The fact that here and now we possess uh, the wonder of God's love and mercy and power through the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, but the not yet of the fact that we don't have it in fullness. We still struggle with sin. We still die of illness. We still face a world that is full of difficulty and challenge. So there is a now in that Christ is present and the kingdom has come, but there's a not yet when that kingdom comes in fulfillment. And that's an eschatological faith because our ultimate destination is not the now. It's the not yet. So like Paul, we know that however carefully we imitate Paul and those who think like him, we will not get to the goal until Jesus returns. So what do we do? Well, Paul puts it like this. He said in verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. The price that we will get when we reach our goal is the fullness of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that will only be ours at the last, okay? But what, we, but what do we know? What have we learned of him and through him thus far? Okay, we may not get much further in this life than what we already know and have learned because we're slow learners. We know that. We may not get much further in this life, but the key thing is, Paul says, we're not going back from that place. As N.T. Wright translates verse 16, only let's be sure to keep in line with the position we have reached. The position we have reached. It's really notable that throughout this passage, most of the time that Paul speaks in the first person, he speaks in the first person plural not in the second person. He doesn't talk about you in the sense of individuals, but he talks about us in the sense of us being together. Paul and these people in Philippi that he is addressing, we're all in the same situation. We have made some progress. We have come into some knowledge. And Paul is saying our key aim now, having got thus far, is to make sure that we don't slip backwards beyond where we currently are. We may not be all that one day we will be. But we have been to the cross and the empty tomb and we have been changed and we are not going back. It's so easy to fall behind what we have come to know. It's so easy to lose direction, to lose enthusiasm, to lose joy, even to lose faith and to lose ground that we have had thought we had already taken in seeking to advance in our love of the Lord Jesus himself. Paul ha, ha, Paul's life had been gripped by Christ. There, he had been in a double grip for he had also taken hold of that grip himself. And Paul was saying to the Philippians, once you take that grip, don't let it go. You're not going back. I was talking to one of the members of staff up in, in uh, uh, 
on, on the site on the Carn Money Road uh, last week. And they were telling me that a relationship uh, we have had for quite a long time as a congregation um, and having access to the community center in one of the estates near to the church, it looks like as if that's now going to be taken off us because um, unfortunately, rather than the council controlling that particular community center, it's now in the hands of a community group for which you can read paramilitary organization. And uh, we've been holding services there and running alpha courses there and doing children's and youth work there over a period of time. And there were plans to do some things these coming months and into the autumn. But in a recent meeting with that group of uh, community leaders and inverted commas, basically, uh, we were being told that we were no longer welcome. And so uh, the member staff that I was talking to was saying to me that they thought they might talk to a, a young man in the congregation who came to faith in Jesus Christ in the last couple of years who came out of that estate and from that paramilitary background quite well known amongst the group of people that we were trying to get access to this building through and so uh, the member staff went to talk to them saying look here's the situation just wondered you know you knew, you know these people and uh, he looked at the member of staff and he said those people were part of my past life and I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. I'm not going back. Question for us is, how far have you come? Okay, when you look at your life, sometimes you might think, I haven't come very far. There are days whenever you look at what you've just done or what you've just said or how you've just failed the Lord or failed yourself and you think, wow, I have made so little progress in looking at anything like Jesus or in having any kind of future-oriented faith at all. But the reality is that you have at least come a distance. And the challenge of Paul in the letter is this, that he is saying to you, it's okay, how far you have come may not look to you like very far. But the key thing right now, it's not that your life is perfect or imperfect, it's not that you at times feel the one whom you love. It's not that you're very good at evangelism or you're particularly skilled at any other thing. And it's not that it looks like as if there are great developments of gifting and whatever in your life. Here's the thing that really matters right now. You're not going back. We need to ask ourselves two questions if we want to live a future-oriented faith. Who's your example? To whom do you grant authority in your life? We don't, generally speaking, have itinerant preachers and others turning up to influence the life of the local fellowship, but every day we are bombarded by influence on social media and in other ways like that. I look at some of the websites and writings that I see Christian believers I know and love posting links to and approving of. And there are days I look at it, I despair. The question we need to ask ourselves is not has this person got like a really cool idea, you know? Does this person seem really intelligent? Do they seem very influential? The question we have to ask ourselves is do they look or sound anything remotely like Jesus Christ? Have they been to the cross and the empty tomb? Are they living a cruciform existence that arises out of that? And therefore, they are the kind of people who can show us what a future-oriented faith looks like. Who's your example? Choose them really carefully. And how far have you come?
I know if you're honest, then sometimes the answer to that question is truly depressing. Because although you do see some measure of change in your life, it's nowhere near where you'd hope to get. But that's not right now the most important thing because you know what? You may not make a whole lot more progress between now and however long it is you have because you're not going to get to the goal and you're not going to win the prize till Jesus comes back. So the most important question right now is not how much further may I get in the next whatever time I have. The question is now you absolutely determined that how far you have come is an absolute line in the sand and you're not going back. That's the challenge. To live a future-oriented faith, we need to be able to answer both those questions. What's our answer?